Good morning. How are you? Good. Good, good, good. If you have your Bible, would you go ahead and turn to Psalm chapter 73? Psalm 73 is where we'll be at today. I'm going to say welcome to the visitors. My name is Kyle Jones. I serve as the lead pastor here. Um, and I'm so grateful that you've chosen to worship with us today. Uh, to the rest of you, it's good to see you again. Um, if you uh, remember kind of at the beginning of the summer, I made this announcement that I was uh, not going to be in the pulpit as much during the summer, that I wanted to get some other men in front of you. And uh, not only would that be good for them, it would be good for us to hear from other men. Uh, I don't ever want the church to become dependent on Kyle's voice or what Kyle has to say. I want the church to be dependent upon the Word of God as it's received from multiple gifted men. Amen. And so uh, it's been good for us. I want to say thank you most recently to Alan and Jasper and Steve uh, for their sermons and for their uh, willingness to get up here and to preach. And in the coming weeks, you will hear from Jasper again. You'll hear from a brother uh, who is outside of our church, but a dear brother to us. His name is Will Gunter. Uh, Will is moving to West Monroe to help with a Christian school there. Uh, and so he's just going to come and share the word with us as a brother who has served in this area for some time now and before he moves away. Um, and he'll continue our psalm series. So just invited him to come preach. Uh, and then James, who just did announcements, will preach again soon. And so uh, look forward to that. Uh, one of you asked me recently, why? <laughs> why are we doing this? And, uh, and so I just explained some of those same things. But the other thing that's allowed me to do is to focus on different projects we've got going on and uh, really some exciting things coming up in the fall with, um, and I'm not going to go into detail on these things, but with Sunday school, uh, biblical manhood and womanhood, uh, remodel, if you will, a restructure of, of the way we're doing things there and then planning uh, future sermon series. So uh, it's given me time to, to focus on those things. We've also had VBS prep and uh, my home group branching. And so uh, we're starting some home group leader training uh, very soon uh, with those new leaders and just a lot going on. I'm very uh, grateful to the Lord for what he's doing. Uh, but, and I'm grateful to you guys for allowing me the time to do that as you hear from other men. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're continuing the psalm series today with Psalm 73. Uh, one of the great purposes of the psalms, as we have said from the beginning, is to give us a look at the varying struggles or, and victories, the highs and the lows of serving God, but especially the emotions that you feel in life. Emotions are not a sinful thing. They're a thing from the Lord. Emotions are part of how we magnify the Lord. They're, they're part of how we deal with perplexion and how we, uh, we, we walk away from something maybe unsatisfied and we try to wrestle with that and to understand what is it that God is doing in those moments. Uh, all of those things breed emotion out of us. The important thing with emotion is to understand how Godly people respond in those feelings. Godly people respond in those moments. And so the Psalms open that up for us. It gives us an opportunity to observe godly men, to observe God's people and how they would respond to God during such moments. This is what we mean when we say that our Psalm series, the purpose of it is to align ourselves with the heart of God or with God's heart. And so Psalm 73 is no exception. Psalm 73 is either written by a man named Asaph, who was a chief musician. He was a singer-songwriter, essentially. Uh, or it's written by David for Asaph to play and sing. Now, I suspect that this one was written by Asaph himself, and that God's people would sing it as a way to inspire wisdom, as a way to inspire faithfulness to God amid the frustrations of observing the wicked's prosperity while enduring hardships. Uh, let me read Psalm 73 to you now, and then we'll pray. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. 
Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, and then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in a heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and after you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. I think the summary of this psalm, which is considered a wisdom song because it highlights wisdom and folly, it shows us the way to follow God amid difficulty, specifically the difficulty of looking upon the prospering wicked and wondering why. So I've summed, the summary, I've summed up the wisdom of this psalm this way. The foolish man envies the wicked's temporary prosperity, but the wise man desires the infinite goodness of God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your kindness in giving us Your Word that we might know You, that we might know Your ways, that we might know how to live especially live as sojourners in a land that we don't belong, Father. As men and women, boys and girls, destined for a land that is above anything, Father, that we could imagine or think. Father, we thank You for the hope of heaven. We thank You for psalms like this that draw us into right thinking and understanding. So, Father, I pray now for wisdom for myself and for Your people. Lord, would You grant us wisdom today as we read this psalm? Help us to understand what it means. Help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives today. Lord, would you ease our perplexions today? Would you draw us into peace, into godliness, into a new desire, renewed desires maybe, to live for you? Father, we thank you for your son Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Amen. In verse 1, the psalmist declares the goodness of God. But as you see throughout the rest of the psalm, the psalmist does not get to this place without a struggle. Asaph wrote this psalm as a reflection on his struggle, the struggle of verses 2 through 12 that we see. And he begins it with this declaration, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, Asaph is clearly talking about true Israel. And what that means is he's not talking about those who are just simply ceremonial clean or who have been circumcised. But he's talking about the ones who are clean in their inward being, the ones who are pure in heart by the grace of God. To those, 
he says, God is and must be good. Asaph didn't arrive here without a struggle, though. It is in his wrestling with whether to believe God is good as he observes the prospering wicked that he arrives at this conclusion that truly God is good to his people. Now, you and I will no doubt face difficulties in this life. We'll face circumstances that we don't understand, often calamities that are happening in our life. There will be events that perplex us, that make us doubt whether or not God is good. But whatever may or may not be the truth about those things that are too difficult for us to understand, what may or may not be the truth about those frustrations regarding the wicked and the righteous, there are things that we can know for sure. By God's Word and by our experience of Him, we have tangible things that we can grab onto so that we might not slip into doubt. Or worse, apostasy. In the storms of uncertainty and misunderstanding, when the winds beat on your house of faith, there is always something you can know that will fortify your faith against the storm. Here the psalmist lays it out for us clearly in the opening verse that we might not miss what our great hope is that we might not be distracted by the perplexions that the psalmist is experiencing. Rather, we see it right out of the gate. Truly, God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. Charles Spurgeon, reflecting on the psalm, said this. He said, Oh my God, however perplexed I may be, let me never think ill of you. If I cannot understand you, let me never cease to believe in you. It must be so. It cannot be otherwise. You are good to those whom you have made good. And where you have renewed the heart, you will not leave it to its enemies. Amen. The thing that blurred the vision of God for Asaph's heart, the thing that troubled his relationship with God, has been resolved, as we see in verse 1, but it was not without a struggle. So Christian, brother, sister, here, you too can wrestle with God for the purpose of aligning yourself with His heart, with His will, with His kingdom. The Lord is pleased to have you come to Him in your difficulties. He's pleased to receive you in your misunderstandings and to help you see clearly what He is doing. Look at Asaph's struggle in verses 2 through 12, we see that the psalmist shows us his crisis of faith. He shows us what the, the issues are. He's envying the prosperity of the wicked. In Psalm 73, 2 through 3, he says this. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The Lord is good, verse 1. But as for me, verse 2, Asaph lays out the contrast between the infinite goodness of God and the short-sightedness of his people, but namely here, of himself. You see, it's easy to look upon someone else and say, they're being short-sighted, they don't understand, they're doubting God. It's much more difficult to look into your own heart and say, but as for me. What led to his nearly slipping off the path of righteousness? Well, he became envious when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And oh, brothers and sisters, that you might see how prone to wonder you truly are. And in so seeing that you might guard yourself all the more from the temptation to treasure something other than God. The psalmist is a child of God meaning his heart has been made pure by the grace of God. Jesus, while teaching his disciples in Matthew 5, says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Asaph is pure in heart. He was given the ability to see God, to see his work in the world, to see him in his word, to see him transforming his own heart and mind. And yet, in a moment, a fleeting moment, 
Asaph took his eyes off the glory of God, which he has seen, and he turned them toward the prosperity of the wicked. It's no small thing to trade our desire of God alone for the desires of the world or the desires of our own flesh, we ought to say. It is treacherous to do so. It's treasonous. It's rebellion against the God of gods, the one who has saved us from our sins. And look at what Asaph saw. Look at why his heart is drawn into this. You and I can surely, surely comprehend. In verse 4, he says, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Here we have the image of someone who doesn't take care of their life. Someone who doesn't take care of their own body. Someone who might live however they see fit. And they appear to have no trouble until death. Asaph's thinking to himself, surely their wickedness deserves some pain. That's not fair. Asaph exclaims. Psalm 73, 5. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. What's he saying? He's saying the wicked have an easy life, comparably speaking, to the rest of us. Why is this so, God? And 6 through 9, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Wow, what visionary we have here. What we see, though, is that the prosperity of the wicked leads to the deeper sins of pride and violence. They're overindulging on their prosperity. They're doubling down on their rebellion against God. They scoff at God's people. They speak to them hatefully, and they threaten oppression. This sounds quite familiar to our day, if you're paying attention. They set themselves against the heavens, speaking as though they created the world themselves, as though they are God. And indeed, they have made themselves the God of their own lives. And yet, they continue to prosper. And Asaph is thinking, this isn't right. This isn't fair. Verses 10 through 12, he says, Therefore, his people, talking about the Lord's people, turn back to them. They go back to the wicked. They go back to the world. They find no fault in them. And then they too join in on the scoffing. How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. And so we see that those who were not true Israel, verse 1, apostatize. They turn back to the world. Look at their prosperity, they say. How can God be true? He does not know anything. Asaph summarizes his frustration. Behold, these are the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. And then in verses 13 through 17, as we're cast, catching the, the depth of his frustration, the psalmist begins to reveal the turning point of his crisis. He moves from foolishness to wisdom, but it's not without a battle. First, observe how far how far his heart has sank into frustration at God over the prosperity of the wicked. So earlier Asaph stated, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. And then here in these two verses, he defines those statements. He shows the depths of where he had fallen in his heart and mind. Look at verses 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He's regretting living a life unto God. It's in vain, he says. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Asaph is saying this, For what reason, God, have I kept my heart clean? Have I washed my hands in innocent? I am stricken all day long. I'm rebuked every morning. I face hardship simply for being your people. 
But the wicked, they go on in prosperity, even cursing your name. And so we see the root of the struggle. We see the heart of the problem here. Life with God demands that I die to myself and suffer afflictions, while a life of rebellion against God allows for the pursuit of my desires and suffers few afflictions. And so Asaph concludes, it must be in vain that I have devoted my life to God. Asaph's essentially saying, maybe those who commit apostasy aren't so wrong after all. truly is one of the great struggles of the Christian faith, isn't it? Pursuing a life with God, dying to self, suffering hardships, and living unto the Lord while the wicked prosper. It's hard to fathom sometimes. Let me give you some examples of things that come to mind in, in my own heart, and in, in my own ministry, and, and things I've observed in the people of God through the years. I work, you work, likely, to honor God by putting death my lust. I suffer defeats and hardships along the way, but the worldly man doesn't have to struggle in this way. His lust goes unchecked. I attempt to bite my tongue to keep from saying what's on my mind in a moment, trying to choose wisdom rather than folly. I feel defeat when I fail at that. But the worldly person doesn't suffer in that way. They don't feel that defeat. They don't feel that pang. I avoid certain forms of entertainment solely for the purpose of guarding my heart and mind from evil. I feel a bit embarrassed when I can't contribute to conversations about the popular show or movie or music on and on, of the day. But the worldly ones engage, they think on, they laugh about, they critique those things. It's a part of their life. I commit time to spiritual disciplines. I try to set aside time daily for prayer and Bible reading, weekly for fellowship with the saints. I struggle with consistency in those things. I struggle with fruitfulness. Is this working? Is this doing anything? I struggle with dedication. But the worldly man doesn't have a care in the world about such things. He uses that time to sleep in, to enjoy a hobby, to run errands, to read a book, to watch TV, to work, etc. One that has pained me as a pastor more times than I can count. It's hard to say because I see the faces. And I hear the questions. Married couples with a strong desire to be fruitful and multiply for the sake of the children in the room who encounter infertility. Looking me square in the face and wondering Why are couples allowed to have children outside of marriage? Choosing to not do it the right way. Here we are, we've committed ourselves to doing it God's way, and there's no blessing. Or what about those babies who are being taken from homes because of lack of care? Another difficulty in our day, single men and women who seek to date someone with marriage and glorifying God in mind, that must be incredibly difficult in a culture that is consumed with self. They're struggling to find someone with those same values, who want to be married and raise a family and glorify the Lord to advance the kingdom of God through that God-ordained union of marriage and child-raising while others simply date around freely. I mean, we could sit here and we could ask each other, what's your frustration? And the list would go on and on. 
point of the matter for Asaph, the point of the matter for you and I is the same. Living unto God, living a life unto God comes with trials. It comes with difficulties that the wicked will not have to endure. They just don't. They don't have the same care, the same desires. Their spirits are not regenerated. A life of godliness means nothing to them. Paul says in Corinthians that it is foolishness unto them to talk about the gospel. They don't understand it. And so it's easy then to sink into this kind of despair that Asaph shows us here. All in vain, God, have I kept my heart clean? Was it in vain that I washed my hands in innocence? For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. This is an incredibly insightful psalm. If it ended there, we would be right to remain kind of depressed. Remain in our despair at least. But it doesn't. Look at what jump starts the transition from foolish envy to godly wisdom in verse 15. Asaph says, if I had said, I will speak thus, that in vain I've done these things, if I had actually said these things, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. It's difficult until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Wow. You see, the psalmist here in these three verses is teaching us a great lesson. Just because you think something does not mean you should say it out loud. It's a really difficult thing to understand. But here we see clearly that speaking it would have been worse than thinking it. Saying it could have led to further apostasy among God's people, bringing them to ruin. But instead, Asaph knows these thoughts in his heart and mind. He knows that they go against what God says. And so he commits himself to try and understand what is going on, though he understands it's going to be a wearisome task, which is just more suffering. Right? And so he admits the difficulty of it initially, but he comes to understand it. And where do we see him coming to understand it? Where is he when he understands it? It says that when he entered the sanctuary of God, he came to see or discerned their end. It's within the house of God and among God's people that he discerned the end of the prospering wicked. Is it not so that we find ourselves most embattled with the world or embattled by our fleshly desires when we are away from the people of God? Is it not so? Right? I find the presence of God and His people within weekly worship and weekly gatherings with my small groups to be a, a balm, if you will, for my embattled soul. It's a help to me. It's a strengthening matter for me. Something spiritual is taking place when I enter into the house of God to fellowship with His people. It's within those times that I'm reminded that I'm merely a sojourner on my way to a better land. It's here that I see that the kingdom work is far superior to the works of my own flesh. It's here that I observe and that I experience and I come to, to know even the desires of God and then I see that my own desires begin to fall away. Asaph, a chief musician, a singer-songwriter, and leading God's people to worship God, he knows intimately the benefit of joining with God's people for worship. He knows intimately the benefit of coming before the Lord. It was in that space that he remembers the differing ends of the wicked and the righteous. Though the issue of the prospering wicked perplexed Asaph, it did not put his faith to death. 
He remembers the goodness of God despite the difficulties he was facing. And that knowledge of God transforms his outlook on his struggle. With a new outlook, he exhorts the saints to find refuge in God also. In verses 18 through 28, the psalmist testifies about the infinite goodness of God. He exhorts the saints, find refuge in him, lest they perish with the wicked. Look at 18 through 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. Now he's reflecting on the wicked. He's come to see their end. He's reflecting on them. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Here Asaph declares the true destiny of the wicked. At face value, their destiny looks like one of prosperity and flourishing. But Asaph says otherwise. He comes to see their end. Their current prosperity is fleeting. It's a mirage. And though they don't appear to be entangled by trials and struggles the same way others are, namely the same way God's people are, their struggle is still to come. Their trial is sure. Their destiny is one without the refuge of God. They have set themselves against the Lord, but it is the Lord who will judge them rightly on the last day. It is the Lord who will have the final say in their lives. Their prosperity is leading them straight into the destruction of their own souls. It's important for us to remember Romans 1 as we think about what this looks like now. In Romans 1, what you see is God turning the rebellious over to the desires of their heart. It talks about how you can know God. You can at least know of God. You can know about God, that there is a creator just by observing creation. And that you can come to know him through the power of the gospel. That it's the power of God unto salvation. And then in verse 21 of Romans 1, Paul says this, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The people here are guilty of idolatry. They're guilty of setting themselves up as God and worshiping what they want. And this is what it says. It says, for this reason, verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relationship for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, sorry, covetousness, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That verse ought not ever be read with a wagging finger at sinners. What Paul is revealing here is the brokenness of humanity. The brokenness of rebellion against God and its fruit. 
Paul is not writing that verse, those verses, in a way to gloat, as we might think. As our flesh and our pride might be prone to think, see, we're right. You are, but you can be right in the wrong way. Paul's writing this, I imagine, with eyes filled with tears as he laments the state of the people around him. Paul is writing one of the most devastating things here in Romans 1. God no longer restrains these people. As wicked as we think the world is, most of it is restrained by God. But there are those who God says, no longer restraining you. And so their seeming prosperity is actually the judgment of God. What we look on with envy and think, man, why is their life so easy and mine is filled with all this difficulty? It's actually the judgment of God. You are envying the judgment of God. Spurgeon says here again about Psalm 73, the psalmist was troubled as he saw many who had no fear of God before their eyes, who seemed always to be prospering. And yet, why do we wonder at this, Spurgeon says? The bull that is intended to be killed is the first to be fattened, and the one that is doomed to destruction will often be allowed to prosper. Would you not let them have as much pleasure as they can have in this life? For they will have none in the next. We must not envy the wicked in their short-lived joys. Spurgeon says. All this, this passage reminded me of another quote from a guy named Randy Alcorn who wrote a book on heaven called Heaven. This is what he says. He says, The best of life on earth is a glimpse of heaven. The worst of life is a glimpse of hell. For Christians, this present life is the closest they will come to hell. And for unbelievers, it is the closest they will come to heaven. What a sad, tragic thought. And then, on the other hand, what a thought of great hope for believers that as bad as this life might get, it's the worst it'll ever be. And then for eternity, for eternity, it'll be wonderful. Without tears, without pain, without sin, without the destruction thereof, all things renewed and restored in the new heavens and new earth. Amen? We will see on display the redemption of God in its fullest, in its fullest being. Whereas what we have now are merely glimpses of it as He redeems lives and restores them, which is no small thing. That is a miracle. The psalmist continues in verses 21 through 24, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. I love these verses. I love them because here we see what it looks like for a man to see his sin and to see God's grace. And it bears the fruit of repentance. I was brutish and ignorant, but you held on to me, God. You showed me the way. You give me counsel. The psalmist confesses his negative emotions that blocked any clear thinking about God. He confesses his beastly ways and he acknowledges the grace of God who kept him despite his foolishness. He was continually with God because God was continually holding him. Amen? He saw God's counsel and he received it. This assured him that he will dwell with God eternally. You see, whatever the portion of the wicked might be, ours is infinitely better because they do not have God and we have God who is all in all. In the end, the psalmist finds all of his comfort in God and so should we, whatever our circumstances might be. And so the psalmist concludes how one who has found his treasure ought to conclude. Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. One of the things I love about those, those 21 through 24 and then 25 through 28, 21 through 24 is the exclamation of sin against God, right? From the point of a believer. That here's who I was. I was brutish and ignorant, and yet you held me. Whom have I in heaven but you? But the beauty of that is the prayer of the unrighteous man, the prayer of the wicked whom he's looking on, can look very similar. Oh God, I was brutish and ignorant, choosing my wickedness over delight in you. Choosing to do my own thing, be my own God. But whom have I in heaven but you? Amen. And that man or woman is assured salvation when they turn from their wicked ways and turn to Christ in faith. They will be saved. It's never too late. But brothers and sisters, believers in here, Christ is the ultimate guarantee that the triune God will fulfill all of His promise of justice for the godly and judgment on the wicked. When Christ went to the cross to take upon Himself the wrath of God, He assures that any who hide themselves in Him, any who make Him their refuge, will not perish from their sins, but that they're forgiven forever and that they'll dwell with Him eternally. They've been given life in Christ. And that same moment on the cross assures that God is just that He will not let wickedness go unpunished. Thankfully, in that day, it landed on His Son and not on us. Not on the wicked yet. But on that last day, Christ will not be crucified again. And anyone who does not hide themselves in Christ, anyone who does not make Christ His refuge, they will perish eternally. They'll receive eternal damnation in hell. God is just. He will not be mocked. Just as the psalmist says here, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. 2 Peter 3, 8-10 reminds us of this. He says, Peter writes here to the churches, just kind of a general letter to churches. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. That just means God has, His concept of time is not like ours. He's eternal. He's infinite, and we are, we are finite. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. He's patient towards unbelievers. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. I urge you then, if you're far from God, draw near to God today through Jesus Christ. Make Him your refuge. Build your life on Him. All who draw near to God in Christ will enter into His presence forever. But the ones who refuse to do so, the ones who remain in their sins, remain far off, those will perish eternally. God will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to Him. The presence of God, which is for those who are in Christ through the indwelling Spirit of God, it's the ultimate solution to the problem of the seeming prosperity of the wicked. 
to have the presence of God is to know true life. It's to have life. Jesus' teaching during his day, Matthew 13, he's given these parables of what the kingdom is like. And he says this in 44 through 46. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found. And then he covered it up. And he goes in his joy and he sells all that he has and he buys that field because of that treasure. Again, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. The question there that Christ is getting at is will you pursue the kingdom of God in this way? Will you give up the life that you know it, the life that you have in order to follow God wholeheartedly? Will you deny yourself? Deny your flesh? Deny your desires that are contrary to God? Deny that that idol that you've been fashioning after your own image? And will you take up your cross? Will you take up your life and say, God, my life is as good as crucified for your sake. I'm following you. Will you pursue the Lord like that? That's what it takes to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, take heart. The psalm reveals that you will have trials, that you will have tribulations for your faithfulness to God, that it will be difficult, and you'll find yourself in the pit of despair saying, what am I doing here? Why have I purified my heart in vain? But take heart, because Christ has overcome the world. You are destined for a better land You're destined for a better land. You've been given a new life in Christ. You will dwell eternally with Him. And so you can remember with all your faculties. Preach to yourself, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. That my despair, my difficulties, my misunderstandings, my doubts, my fears, my concerns about whether or not it's all worth it, all of that is building an eternal weight of glory for you which is kept in heaven. And your hope in Christ is undefiled. It'll be there. It remains. It's not going anywhere. And Christ in John 10 says that all who come to Me as sheep that He will not turn away. And He holds Him in His hand, that the Father holds us in His hand, and that no one will pluck us from His hands. Amen? Praise God. The foolish man envies the wicked. He envies their temporary prosperity. But the wise man desires, delights in, the infinite goodness of God. Would you stand to your feet now? Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You, Lord, for Your infinite goodness. God, I thank You that we see here in Psalm 73 that we can come to You with our doubts and our worries and our fears and our our misunderstandings, God, our concerns. God, I thank You that what we see in the New Testament is that our sufferings, our afflictions identify us with the Lord Jesus who suffered the greatest affliction greater than any we'll ever have to suffer. As He took Your wrath upon Himself that we might be Your people once again. That we might have peace with God. And so whatever hardship we face here, It pales in comparison to that that Christ faced on our behalf. Father, I pray that You would help us now to find life in Christ Jesus above all else.
that we would not be found wanting, not be found with hearts wandering into the world. God, would you save us from syncretism? Would you save us, God, now, today, as so many ideologies, so many forms of living, so many thoughts about all sorts of things, holiness and marriage and what is sin and what's not sin and how should we live for you and the lies of social justice and so many of these things, Father. Would you help us not try to syncretize, to make those things fit into a Christian worldview? Help us, Father, to stop reading the Bible with what we want it to say in mind and help us to hear what it really says that our hearts and minds might be transformed, that we might know real life, life to the fullest, as Christ calls it. God, would you save us from ourselves? God, we know that we've been set free in our minds to serve you by the Spirit of God, but that our flesh is still broken and it still has desires that are contrary to your word. God, grant us wisdom in these days that we might not defile you. Help us to honor you, Lord. Help us to live lives of holiness. God, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you. Would you save them from their sins? Would you grant them regeneration by your Holy Spirit that they might show faith in Christ, turn from their sins, and live for you? Would you open their heart, open their eyes and their ears to see and to hear you? Lord, help them not be counted among the ones who find the gospel as foolishness. Help them to see its wisdom, its freedom. Father, help us as believers now, men and women, boys and girls who claim to know you. God, help us to deal rightly with our sin. Help us to confess that we too are brutish and ignorant. We need your life in us. Save us, Lord. We know that you will. We know that when you call, we call on you, you're there. You hear us. Father, we love you. We love your Son. We praise you for the Spirit which makes us alive with him. When we ask these things, we beg these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.